Last time in the book of Acts, we saw that the Jerusalem church, to deal with this complaint made by the Hellenists concerning, concerning the daily distribution of food to their widows, we saw they set apart seven servers so that the apostles could minister the word without distraction. One of those seven was Stephen. Stephen, a Hellenistic Jew, about whom we've already been told. We already know quite a bit about him. He's a man full of the spirit and of wisdom, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And thus a man whom, as we shall see, a man who can preach, and a man who can debate, and a man who can rehearse the history of Israel. We've already been told that the people, not their leaders, but the people, the people held the community of disciples in high esteem. And after, after the setting apart of the seven, we were also told that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So what happens starting here in the narrative over the next chapter or so, it's something we're really not quite prepared for, even though the apostles have faced some serious resistance already. The ministry of Stephen, to which we're introduced today, and eventually the martyrdom of Stephen, will be the catalyst paving the way for the Gentile mission, the mission to the nations, to the world, which will in large part be led by one Saul of Tarsus. But we are not quite there yet, so today we'll make two points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Stephen and the synagogue and the temple and the Torah. So, first we're in Acts chapter 6, right? Stephen and the synagogue. So, Stephen, we're told, in addition to the gifts we've already seen ascribed to him, considerable gifts really, was full of grace and power, we're told. This is, as in our Lord Jesus, a marvelous combination. Grace and power, sweetness and strength, the fruit of the Spirit and the saving power of the Spirit, right? If you see the power without the fruit, you should be suspicious. And if you have the fruit, there will be power in that. Stephen has both. He has the fruits of the Spirit and he has the power of the Spirit. And they're not distinct things. He has the strength and sweetness of our Lord. The Spirit, it turns out, has not merely gifted Peter for the serving of tables. Remember, that's what he was consecrated for. As noble as that is, he has a plethora of gifts. And he has a wider calling, apparently. Like the apostles, like Jesus before them, Jesus, of whom Stephen is an icon. It's important to sort of see that in the whole Stephen narrative. He is an icon of Christ, and as an icon or an image of Jesus Christ, he stands as a sort of model or pattern for Christian discipleship, Christian martyr witnessing. So, like the apostles, like Jesus before them, Stephen, it says in the text, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In Stephen, the line between the apostles and the seven is blurred. And as we shall see, Like Jesus, 
and like the apostles, and before that, like the prophets, like the prophets, Stephen shall take his place in the grand succession of suffering witnesses, and he shall meet the prophetic destiny, the victor's crown of martyrdom. Fitting, of course, because his name means crown. So, Stephen is doing great signs. We're not told what they were. We're not told what they were in the text. But they arouse opposition. And not just from the Sanhedrin, which is kind of where the opposition has been centered to this point. The text says this. Some who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen. Synagogue of the freedmen is a synagogue started by Jews who were freed from Roman slavery, Greco-Roman slavery, along with their descendants, thus the synagogue of the freed men. Now, it's not perfectly clear, but it looks like we have one synagogue here, composed of four people groups, four ethnicities. Some, some scholars see multiple synagogues here, but I think there's one synagogue. And in this synagogue, there are peoples from Cyrene, there are Alexandrians. Both of those are from North Africa. There are people from Cilicia, which is where Saul of Tarsus is from, up in Asia Minor, and Asia, which is a province in modern-day Turkey. The point I want you to see here is these are foreign or Hellenistic Jews, just like Stephen. That's sort of the big takeaway. So therefore, we have a dispute, and it's a dispute with grave consequences, but it's a dispute within the covenant people at this point. Some from inside this synagogue rose up and they disputed with Stephen. So the resistance now spreads from the Sanhedrin to the populace, to the people of the synagogue. And at the very beginning, at this point, it's merely a dispute. There's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, the content of this dispute we'll see in a bit. Now, if you look in Acts chapter 6, you look at verse 10, you'll get Luke's inspired summary of this debate. He says, They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. So in addition, Stephen had wisdom. Wisdom to speak. He he clearly has the gift of speaking in public, speaking the oracles of God. Now, we've already seen this, but remember, our Lord Jesus said that his spirit would give them mouths to speak when they were hauled before the synagogues and the rulers. Jesus even uses the word withstand, which Luke uses here in our text. Jesus says in Luke's gospel, he says this, I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand. What a promise that is. I will give you words. I will give you wisdom. I will give you my spirit. When you are hauled in front of these authorities, no one will be able to withstand it. So the spirit and the wisdom which our Lord promised are the spirit and the wisdom. And wisdom here means something like tactical skill. The spirit and the wisdom with which Stephen speaks. Now again, this language, if you're listening to this language, it sounds a lot like Luke uses in his gospel to speak of Jesus himself. In the gospels, he says of Jesus, he became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. 
As I've already said, Stephen is a living image of Christ. Right? He points us to Jesus Christ. We see Christ in him. And thus, thus we see a pattern to imitate in Christian existence. Now, there's a progression. Obviously, I think you all know this if you're familiar with the book of Acts. There's a progression in this confrontation. It begins with a dispute. But the opponents of Stephen, they see they're losing the dispute. So in verse 11, they move to slander. Starts with a dispute, moves to slander. It says they secretly instigated men. They secretly, you know, behind the scenes, political actors as they are, they stir up men to say this. We have heard him say blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, that's a pretty serious charge, blaspheming Moses and blaspheming God. We'll come back to this charge of blasphemy. But for now, just for now at the beginning, note this. Right? There's an unfortunate trajectory here. An argument starts off, at least it appears to start off, as just a simple dispute. A dispute about theology. Maybe about scripture and about what it teaches. But it quickly, as it often does, escalates into mudslinging. And to slander, into vicious attacks. Right? There's, there's almost nothing more disheartening than watching Christians argue with each other in public. <laughs> Whether it's online or on Twitter. Right? The snideness, the sniping. Maybe some of you haven't seen it. Blessed are you if you're not aware of what I'm talking about. <laughs> the point scoring, the condescension the unctuous self-righteousness, the unfairness, the lack of charity, the half-truths, the whole thing, the spectacle of the whole thing is a stain on us all. Rare is the person who can conduct these differences with humility and with grace. Here's Calvin talking about his situation, the opposition that the Reformers faced in the 16th century from the Roman church establishment. He says this, Not one of them will be found who does not permit himself to distort both the meaning and the words of Scripture in order to bring odium on our teaching, and they even fabricate monstrous lies against us from the pulpit. So there's a long history of this. Distortion, lying. Things quickly escalate as they do here. They escalate. We have heard him Speak blasphemy against Moses and God. This is a kind of rush to judgment. So, it's a dispute. It turns into slander. It turns into these accusations. And the next step is they stirred up the people. The people were previously favorable. The people came upon Stephen, the people, the populace, and they seized him. And they brought him before the Sanhedrin. So this is basically a forcible mob arrest. Right? And once before the court, it says they produced false witnesses who claimed that he, quote, never ceased to speak words against this holy place and against the law. So notice, we've moved very fast, right, from theology to slander, to coercive violence, and now to legal corruption. The opposition to the gospel moves here beyond prison, beyond beatings, and on this very day, 
on this very day, even to death, to execution by stoning. Because remember, Stephen is in the last day, perhaps the last hours of his earthly life. Think about that. We just had his ordination service as a proto-deacon a half an hour ago. All of his study, all of his training, all of his preparation, all of his abundant but not yet fully developed gifts, his brand new calling and consecration as one of the seven, and then almost immediately martyrdom. Right? That's what victory looks like in the inscrutable providence of God. That's the narrative of Stephen's triumph. So that's Stephen and the synagogue. That's really background to what we want to get out here today. The second point, and here we're going to see the substance of what's going on, is temple and Torah. Temple and Torah. Verse 11. Now here's the charge in its first instance. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Moses represents the law, the Torah, and God probably stands in for the place where he's enthroned, the temple. So those are the two big issues. I mean, these are big ones, right? We're not nibbling around the edges here. This is the Torah and the temple. So this is made clear by the false witnesses in verse 13. If you jump down, you'll see that false witnesses are called. And they say this. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. That's the temple. And against the law. That's the Torah. Now, what is Stephen saying? That's so appalling, so offensive, that it's going to eventually eventuate in a capital crime. It's clear that Stephen is just declaring, right? He's just teaching publicly what he heard Jesus say. Or what he was taught that Jesus said. Right? That's what we do as witnesses. We declare what Christ has said to the world. And that's all Stephen's doing. And they know that, because you'll see they say this. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. That's the temple. We've heard him say that. And that this Jesus of Nazareth will change the customs that Moses gave us. That's the Torah. So, yes, Stephen said all these things, but he's saying that this Jesus of Nazareth is going to do this. Jesus will do these things, and they're blasphemous things. We cannot tolerate them. Now, we may not have the sensitivities, obviously, that first century Jewish people would have about these things, right? The temple and the Torah are sacred. If you want to see how provocative this is, it would be kind of akin to attacking the flag and the Constitution. You can't criticize them or question their legitimacy, much less suggest that they will be respectively destroyed, the temple, and changed, the Torah. So, these charges then against Stephen, they're so typical of what you get in this kind of debate, especially when it gets heated, especially when you're touching precious sacred things. The accusation against Stephen here is, is what they call a dog's breakfast, meaning it's a confused mess. Like, it's clear enough that we can figure out what Stephen was saying with some certainty. And we, it's clear enough we can kind of figure out which teachings of Jesus he's referring back to. Yet, in the hands of his enemies, 
all they hear is blasphemy and lying words and attacks on our sacred traditions. That's all they're getting. So when they repeat it to the council, right, it comes across all garbled. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I think it's always good in debate to be able to say to the other person, now let me see if I've got your position right. And then you articulate it back to them with grace and humility and precision and robustness and nuance to the point where you can get them to say, yes, 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 that's exactly what I believe. That's exactly why I believe it. Thank you. Now we can debate it. That almost never happens. Get get there first. Let the other person say, exactly, that is exactly what I believe. We're not even close to that here, right? So we can kind of tell what's going on, but it's all garbled. So let me try and sort this out. First, these are called false witnesses in verse 13. So the charges are false. But we all know, right, that false charges can have a good deal of truth in them. That's what makes defending oneself difficult. Things are never 100% false. And these people have had selective hearing. They don't have the patience or the humility to do what we just said, to get the thing right. If you listen to these charges, they are not a tissue of lies. They are not baseless fabrications plucked out of the air. As mentioned, right, you can hear the echoes of Jesus' teaching in this version that's presented by these witnesses. But it's twisted. It's twisted. So there are two areas of contention, the temple and the Torah. Let's take them one at a time. The temple. Here's the charge. Stephen speaks blasphemous words against God, that is, against this holy place, saying Jesus will destroy this place. Well, there's a great deal of truth in that accusation, is there not? But it's not blasphemy. Nor is it properly understood against the temple. That's where the issue lies here. Let's look briefly at what Jesus taught on the matter. We just heard it read in the gospel lesson. He teaches in all three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the temple would be destroyed. That not one stone would be left that would not be torn down. Now, this is the place, right? This is the center of Jewish piety and devotion and love of God and worship. This is the place that was defiled by the Greek king Antiochus IV in the 2nd century B.C. when he ordered that sacrifices be offered to swine in the temple and he had idolatrous images set up in the precincts. And this provoked what we know as the Maccabean Revolt, the Maccabean movement to liberate the temple. This place was later desecrated by the Roman general Pompey in 63 B.C. So this is tender and it's traumatic ground. And these words of Jesus, they sound to their ears like blasphemy against God, the God of Israel in this holy place. But Jesus doesn't back down. In John's gospel, we read this. Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And you remember what they said to him there. They said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Not grasping that he was speaking about the temple of his body. And we know, get this, he must have taught this with some regularity, 
Because you know when this comes up again? Among the masses, just among the common people? It comes up through the crowds at our Lord's crucifixion. So here's Mark chapter 14. Some stood up and and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But you know he said it a lot when people are at his execution and saying, Hey, we remember this guy saying this. In fact, later in in Mark's gospel, Mark 15, those who passed by Jesus derided him. They wag their heads and they say, Aha, you who would destroy the temple. And rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So this is a fundamental claim of that's blasphemous. Everybody knew, everybody knew that Jesus said the temple would be destroyed. And that he would reconstitute the temple around his risen body. But they didn't understand what that meant or what he meant by rebuilding the temple in his own body. They could only imagine the destruction of the temple as blasphemy, as desecration. It's somewhat odd, right? The temple had been destroyed before in the 6th century B.C. by the Babylonians. But they have an attitude toward it that it's almost quasi-eternal. So what's the root of this, the problem here? Well, I think it's this. It's not grasping Jesus Christ. Right? They don't understand who he is properly. Right? This is the gospel. Who is Jesus? What does he do? But you've got to get the who part first right. Right first. You've got to get the who part. And they're not grasping who's standing in front of them, who's making these claims. Jesus is Israel's Messiah, but he is the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Jesus is the one in whom the radiant Shekinah glory of God dwells. Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. We beheld his glory, John says in the gospel, right? He is the radiance of the heavenly temple. He's its archetype and pattern. And thus Jesus says, something greater than the earthly temple is here. And that's what's not being grasped here. They do not understand the divinity and the messianic calling of this Jesus. Something greater than the temple is here, namely the Lord of the temple, the judge, the fulfiller of the old temple system. Now, here's a crucial point to remember, and I think this, one, this often drops out of sight, especially in these debates here in the, our text. The point is the Jerusalem temple, for all of its splendor, right, for all of its divine mandate, for all of Solomon's wisdom, right, for all of its glory. It was but a copy and a shadow, the book of Hebrews tells us, of the heavenly temple. It's not the original. It's a copy. It's not the substance. It's a shadow. Jesus, we might say then, is restoring the original pattern and bringing it to its consummation creating around his own risen body, crucified for you, raised up for your justification, the cornerstone of a new temple, a cosmic temple, not a local temple, a cosmic temple, a temple not made with hands, a temple made with the Spirit, not a provisional temporary temple, an eternal temple, not a temple on earth, a temple in heaven, a heavenly temple in the Spirit. That was foreseen by the prophets. That's what's happening. 
That's really the gospel in temple form. (laughs) Here's Peter's language. You yourselves, like living stones, each one of you is a living, you're, you're part of the temple that God is building. You're a stone in this temple. You're being built up as a spiritual house, meaning a house in which the spirit dwells, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The temple finds its enduring reality, its perpetuity, its center in Jesus Christ and his body. Now, you may take this for granted, but it's, what it is is the glory of the fulfillment of the promises to the prophets. There's, there's nine straight chapters in Ezekiel on a coming new heavenly eschatological temple. Here's Calvin. He says this, The great value of the temple and the usefulness of the ceremonies consist in their being ascribed to Christ as to their original pattern. Notice that. Christ is not just the one who fulfills the Old Testament temple. He's the original heavenly pattern for the earthly temple. And then Calvin says this. He's commenting on this passage. He says this, No one is harming or dishonoring God and Moses when he suggests that the visible temple is an image of a more excellent sanctuary in which the fullness of God dwells and teaches that the shadows of the law are temporary. That's what's happening here. There's a more excellent temple, the heavenly splendor dwelling place of God. And it's probably true that Stephen himself didn't grasp all of this at this early date. But here's what we know. We know his opponents seem to have grasped none of it. They're not working with these kinds of categories. They're not thinking in terms of promise and fulfillment, type and shadow and substance. And thus, here's the thing, thus they're charges. And the charges have more than a grain of truth in them, right? They do. But they are still false and perverse, right? When you're going to charge somebody with a theological error, you can't be 80% right. The charges have more than a grain of truth, but they're perverse, So the same can be said, that's the temple area of dispute, the Torah. Look look at the Torah. Here's the charge. He speaks against Moses. He never ceases to speak against the law. He says Jesus will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Again, this is bearing false witness. It has, like the first charge, it has elements of truth, but they're all mangled. Because surely, if you're listening to Jesus of Nazareth go around and teach, he does some radical and unexpected things with the law. I mean, for example, if the temple is fulfilled in Christ, in his crucified and raised body for us, right? That means the whole Levitical priesthood and all of its sacrificial laws, all that rotates around the temple, all of those laws are fulfilled. That kind of counts like a change of the customs of Moses to me. But this would be heard. They heard it. And what a person hears is really important, right? What they're hearing is blasphemy and a change of our holy traditions. They don't think there's such a thing as a Melchizedekian high priesthood, which transcends the Levitical priesthood. So Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I'm the Lord of the law. I'm the lawgiver in human flesh. 
I determine how the law is to be upheld. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, so I determine how the Sabbath laws are to be upheld. And you know what this did, right? It rankled the lawyers of his day. And it often baffled the theologians of his day. That's why he's always in disputes with these people. He went around correcting scribal interpretations and corruptions of the law, trying to restore the law's original intention. That's why throughout the Sermon on the Mount, right, you get this repeated, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, it's also important to remember here, for the Pharisees, the written Torah was supplemented by an oral law. An oral Torah supposedly going all the way back to Moses. An accumulation of traditions, which Jesus felt free to disregard or to correct. And which they saw as meaning he was hostile to the law itself. So, yes, again, in some important ways, Jesus changes the customs of Moses. But here's the key point. The temple and the Torah find their ongoing validity in relationship to Jesus Christ. Not the other way around, right? He's not fitted into their, origi- their schemes of temple and Torah. He's Lord of the temple, lawgiver of the Torah. Again, it's a misunderstanding that the one in front of them is the second person of the Holy Trinity in human flesh, Yahweh incarnate. So finally, don't overlook this glorious verse 15 in this text. Stephen has not even spoken yet. <laughs> We'll look at his speech, Lord willing, next week. He's not even spoken. And gazing at him, the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Like the face of an angel. And this, he's, we're not using angel here the way we might use it. Right? Like he was like an angel. You know? It doesn't mean Stephen was cute. Right? It means he was reflecting the radiance of these burning heavenly beings. So, so notice how important this verse is. Here's the irony which they miss, just as they missed all the key other issues. Moses, we heard this in the Old Testament lesson, the lawgiver's face shone with the glory of God when he came down off the mountain with the tablets. And Stephen's face is shining like the angels because he is the one in this conversation upholding the the glory of the Torah as it is fulfilled in the transfigured, shining Christ, the greater Moses. So this little statement in verse 15 is packed with significance. Stephen is already lifted up, at least by vision, into heaven itself, into the true temple. Think about that. His face being like this means, I'm already partaking of the true heavenly temple. I'm already reflecting the radiance of the true lawgiver the way Moses did. I'm seated with the court of God. There's a council against me, a court, the Sanhedrin. I'm seated with the council of God, the heavenly court, the angelic host, and I'm reflecting in my face the glory of God, even as the burning angels in God's holy temple do. The angels who attended the giving of the law on Sinai to Moses. It's a stunning, stunning verse. In all of this, Stephen points us to Jesus Christ. Right, whose glory right, we saw in the transfiguration, who is the radiance of the divine glory, who is the word or the law of God made flesh. 
So this is in Stephen, faithful, heavenly minded, earthly witness to Christ, who is the builder of the heavenly temple and the fulfiller of the holy Torah. To the one whose radiant luminosity Stephen's already tasting, already reflecting in his bodily constitution. And it's a radiance which we, right, who are also called to be martyr witnesses, shall also partake of. So glory, radiant glory be to God and Jesus Christ, the the God whose glory shines in the temple, shines in the Torah, and shines on the faces of his saints. Amen.